Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. This week, we're celebrating 100 episodes of Seasoned. That is 100 hours of interesting, fun conversations with people in the food world we respect. Chefs, cookbook authors, home cooks, farmers, restaurant market owners, and drink experts. Ahead on Seasoned, we're listening back to a few of our favorite conversations from the last two years. We'll share highlights from my tour of the Hummel Brothers hot dog facility in New Haven and our conversation with Chef David Standridge of Shipwright's Daughter and Mystic. But first, we want to share two conversations we had earlier this year with chefs whose enthusiasm for their cuisines was infectious. Patty Heenich shared recipes and stories with us from her cookbook, Treasures of the Mexican Table. We talk about tacos and fideo, which is pasta, as well as tacos made with fideos. So many things are just begging to be tacoed, uh, you say in the book. So talk about it. Taco about it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, I love this question so much. I mean, this, this last cookbook, Treasures of the Mexican Table, took me four years to put together. It was such an incredibly ambitious project. And how you divide the categories of food, right? So it was, you know, the soups, the chicken, the meat, the lamb, the pork, the sides, etc. And then where do you draw the line on which of those dishes are tacos? You know, like a taco de carne asada, like a carne asada taco or al pastor taco, because so many things can live outside of the taco and you can eat them with rice or inside of the taco, but you can also burrito them. You can also torta them. You can also tostada them. This can be a taco book because you can practically taco anything. (laughs) I mean, Mexicans, we will taco our shoes. You know, we will taco anything. So, but at the same time, we like to say, oh, we are so much more than tacos. You know, we have the magnificent soups and, you know, vegetable-based dishes and greens and salads and moles. And we have so many things that are beautifully simple or very elegantly complex. And we're not about tacos, but just put a tortilla on any table where there is a Mexican and we will taco the finest moles. Like we will taco anything. So we, we work against ourselves a little there. To that point about the tacos and putting a taco into anything and that Mexican food really is varied, one does not necessarily think of pasta or fideos when they think of Mexican food. Even in my Puerto Rican household, my mother did make sopa de fideos, fideos being those really skinny, short uh, <laughs> pasta yes. that I, I have only in my life ever seen in the soup that my mother makes. But fideos are a part of a part of the Mexican cuisine. They are. And it's so funny that you say that, you know, coming from Puerto Rico, you also used to eat sopa de fideo. I was just thinking about tres leches cake because, you know, I have the traditional tres leches, the marbled, the stone fruit tres leches, the almond marzipan tres leches. You can have tres leches in so many ways. And we Mexicans think that tres leches is our thing, right? But so do Ecuadorians. (laughs) So do Venezuelans, so do Colombians. So there are these common denominators that I, of all of these like sister Latin countries that I didn't know about when I moved to the U.S., just tying into the being so blessed when you're an immigrant in another country and how you have to, you're held to a higher standard, first of all, because you represent the place that you left and then you have to do right and show your proof in the place you land. But also, there's many things that you see that you didn't see when you were cooking in that broth. You know, you're taken out of the broth and you can appreciate other things. When 
I was growing up in Mexico and I started political science. I wanted to be an academic and before switching careers. And the focus for Mexicans is the U.S. We have this obsession. You know, it's this love-hate thing, Mexico, U.S., Mexico, U.S. If you see, a, if we see a little bit further than U.S., maybe it's Canada, a little bit of international relations, but we are never taught in history, in the public school system, in education. We don't learn anything south of Mexico. It's so little. It's like this focus with the North, you know? And when I moved to the U.S. and I started Latin American studies and I started meeting people from Venezuela and Colombia and Peru and Puerto Rico and Cuba, and I saw so many things in common. It was like finding a family, you know? Suddenly, you know, wait, you eat tres leches too and you have tamales too and you... And, it's such a fascinating thing when you see all of those common denominators and how they evolve differently in the different countries as time moves on, right? But, you know, a Mexican will fight to say, you know, ceviche is ours, tres leches is ours, arroz con leche is ours, flan is ours, even though, you know, the Spanish nuns brought them. But hey, now we make them with ours. Oh, and by the way, there are Mexicans in Mexico who taco fideo. Um, in the north of Mexico, I'm, I'm headed to Nuevo León where we're filming the next season of Patty's Mexican Table. And I have a chef friend there. His name is Adrián Herrera. And he's famous for tacoing fideo. And apparently his fideo tacos are really good. So I will have to report back on that. It's like the macaroni pizza idea, right? Yeah. Like, how can you do that? But then... You try it and you're like, how can you not do that? A pasta taco. Is that what we're talking about here? Yes. But but think about this. Okay. It's a warm corn tortilla. It's soft. It's malleable. It's a little bit naughty. It wants to be sweet. And then it's talked with this video that's uh-huh. very saucy, messy, spicy. And you have the contrasting texture of the fideo, which is, you know, whole wheat pasta. And then you have the tortilla, which is corn-based. So you have the contrasting carbs there. You know, it is carb on carb. That sounds delicious. I'm in. I love this. (laughs) I know. I know. So for home cooks looking for an authentic Mexican dish that maybe they haven't heard of already, what's a dish you'd recommend they try from your book first? Ah, Smoky guacamole. Yeah, no, I know. It's like everybody knows guacamole. Everybody knows a taco. And this was one of the reasons why I wanted to make this book. It's like people already are such fans of birria and carnitas. And there's so much of Mexican in the American culinary lingo, which is such a beautiful thing. But this book is like, okay, here's another 150 Mexican classics that you need to know about. So I think... And next big thing, just like carnitas or birria or chicken tinga, is going to be chilorio. Mm. I think chilorio is one of those dishes that's kind of a sloppy joe kind of a thing with its own seasonings. It's shredded meat, usually pork, but you can make it with beef or with chicken. Chilorio is so accommodating. You can make a torta out of it. You can make tacos. You can make burritos. You can eat it on its own with rice. And it has its very peculiar taste which is rich but so delicious so i think people should give chilorio a try because if you make a big batch of it you can repurpose it throughout the week so you make it 
you have kids, you make it one day, you eat it with rice, then you put it in the fridge in a couple of days, you make a quesadilla, a sincronizada, mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the tortilla, cheese, chilorio, you serve it with a little guacamole or ripe avocado. In the next few days, you make it with like a baguette, you make a crunchy sandwich or the chilorio. I have a friend that makes chilorio lasagna. lasagna. So there's so many ways to go. We're, we love repurposing things. What exactly is chilorio? Okay, chilorio is typically pork that's cooked as if they were carnitas. So it's pork that's cooked in its own fat. You know, it can be pork butt, pork shoulder, and it cooks and cooks and cooks until it renders all of its flavor and its fat, and then it browns in its own fat. And you keep on cooking it until it starts falling apart. So that's carnitas, right? With that, you're done with carnitas. But chilorio, you go a step further. Chilorio comes from adding a chile. And you're going to add a couple of chiles. It can be ancho or guajillo, which you just simply rehydrate and puree. There's versions that have orange juice, which is my favorite. And then you just puree the orange juice with the um, rehydrated chile you may want to add a tomato you may want to skip the tomato and you add some herbs like cumin oregano you puree that and you have the meat that's already falling apart luscious caramelized in the edges and then you pour that orange ancho chile sauce and then it just finishes cooking in that that's chilorio so it's imagine shredded carnitas that are then cooked in these very seasoned, thick, Mexican-style barbecue sauce, to put it in a way. So you have that finished thing, which you can then repurpose and use in tacos, in quesadillas, in sandwiches. You can scramble it with an omelet in the morning. You know, there's so many things you can do with it. I'm coming over right now. That sounds amazing. My stomach is growling right now. <laughs> right. Holy moly, that sounds delicious. Okay, so now that we've got to the chilorio, which our listeners are going to be so thankful that you walked us through that, and by listeners, I mean me, mm -hmm. um, what are some of the misconceptions or understanding of Mexican food in Mexico and Mexican food in the United States? Because mm -hmm. you, you touched on something that I've thought about forever, which is there are these fads in food in general, not just Mexican cuisine, but suddenly chicken tinga appeared on every menu. Everything. And then, and then birria. It's like, oh, we have to go to the new birria spot. You know, and now you're saying the next cool thing is going to be these, ¿cómo se llama? Chilorio? Chilorio. Yeah, chilorio. I say. Yeah, chilorio. Yeah, you guys, we have to make it a thing. We have to make it yeah. a thing. But what is the what is your understanding of the difference? Is there a difference? Is there a big delineation? <laughs> And I, and I love what you're saying of what do I think are the misconceptions, not only in the U.S., but in Mexico, because this is what I realized when I moved to the U.S. and I started cooking Mexican food because I was so homesick and it was my way of growing roots and making a home in a new country was by cooking the foods that had nurtured me growing up and that I could share with people because I really, my English was horrible. I still have a heavy accent, but I couldn't string a sentence then. So it was a way for me to share and communicate. And I think that we Mexicans have to learn so much about ourselves. And I only realized that when I moved to the U.S. See, when I was growing up in Mexico, the place to go for your birthday or for a celebration was the Spanish restaurant. 
the French restaurant, the American style cafeteria, we really didn't appreciate our own cuisine. It was like in the 90s and 2000 when like more chefs started saying, hey, our cuisine is pretty extraordinary. It can sit on the table of the mother cuisines of the world. And we started appreciating. So to give you an example, if you were from the Yucatan Peninsula, you didn't have any idea about Northern style food. If you were from Mexico and you hadn't gone to Veracruz, you didn't know about La Comida Caribeña. Um, you didn't know about all the richness and diversity. I think social media has definitely helped, you know, in sharing, but also the chefs and cooks that leave the country and come back or travel to different places that help you appreciate. What helped me appreciate and learn, I mean, I was on this mission to share Mexican food with the U.S. when I started Patty's Mexican Table. And I started going to the different regions of Mexico that I knew because I wanted to share them. As the seasons moved on, I started going to the regions that I had never been before. And I started realizing I had no idea. I had no idea that flour tortillas were not an American thing, but a very deep northern Mexican thing that we do have burritos and chimichangas and they're extraordinary that we, you know, it was like a Mexican that's dedicating her life to sharing Mexicanness, realizing how little I know about Mexico. So it was, you know, not only breaking myths and misconceptions here in the U.S. and telling Americans, wait, we're not just about the cheese. We're not just about the chiles not everything is spicy not everything is laborious not that everything is greasy but wait i didn't know about this and mexico also has this and i didn't know about this and mexico has that so it has been so eye-opening and the same with with american cuisine in the u.s i had my idea of what the u.s food was like when i moved to the u.s which was very misconfounded, you know? I didn't know there was all these different kinds of regional barbecues and Southern cuisine and, and the, the cuisines from the different coasts. And what has been even more eye-opening is the evolution of regional Mexican cuisine north of the border. No longer can you say that Mexican food is only good south of the border. There's all these Mexican communities and cooks that have settled in different parts of the U.S. that come with their regional cuisine techniques and recipes, and then they intermarry with what they find. And it's very different if a Oaxacan cook starts cooking in New York and starts using ingredients from New York. It's very different than if that Oaxacan chef or cook moves to Arizona, Very right? So you have these Calmex, Tex-Mex, New York mix, Northern mix. And that I find some people find very intimidating and like, whoa, what's happening? We're being taken over by Mexican cuisine or no Mexican food should only stay in Mexico. I find it fascinating, you know, and so delicious. Now, while Patty deepened our appreciation of regional Mexican cuisine, Chef Darina Allen made us fall in love with Irish cuisine. We talked with Darina this past spring leading up to St. Patrick's Day. Darina Allen runs the world-renowned Ballywaloo Cookery School in Ireland. She's a passionate ambassador of Irish food and the slow food movement. She's also the author of many best-selling and award-winning cookbooks, and a reissue of her book, Forgotten Skills of Cooking, has just been published. It's a classic in Ireland and here in the United States. Darina Allen, welcome to Seasoned. Well, thank you. What a joy to be able to team up across the world like this. Lovely to meet you. <laughs> Lovely to meet you too. Darina, we're curious, where are you joining us from? 
Uh, I'm joining you from the south coast of Ireland, uh, east of Cork City, uh, in a place called Ballymaloo. Uh, we're right in the middle of a farm and we're very close to the sea. We have a little fishing village of Ballycotton uh, very close to us here. Wow, Ballymaloo, not to be confused with Ballyhoo. Irish Food Ambassador has become part of your, your CV, a part of your culinary identity. Does Irish food really need an ambassador? <laughs> Up to, you know, a decade ago, at least, I think you guys over there thought we lived on corned beef and cabbage <laughs> and so on. But my goodness, uh, and people used to obviously come to Ireland, many, many uh, tourists come to Ireland. They had heard about the friendly people and the wonderful landscape and all of that. And they thought they'd just endure the food. But actually now you can literally go from one end of the country to the other and get delicious food and everything from pubs and uh, B&Bs and hotels and restaurants. And people are traveling so much more. They've become so much more adventurous. And at long last, we've woken up to the fact that we have some of the very best, we can produce some of the very best ingredients in the entire world. And I'm, I'm not just looking at this with rose-tinted glasses because I live in Ireland. That is actually the case because we have rich, fertile soil and we have clean waters and we can produce such wonderful produce and all good food, as you well know, starts with the ingredients. So, And we can grow grass like nowhere else in the world. So basically, our many of our best foods, our beef and our lamb and our dairy products come from the, the grass. And you can get many of our dairy products over there in America, can't you? Yeah, our butter and all of that. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, honestly, Darina, as a chef, I've watched tons of videos of yours so it's a definitely an honor to have a chance to chat with you here sorry i have to fangirl out a little bit i apologize friends but <laughs> so but when americans think of irish food corned beef and cabbage like is immediately what jumps to your mind like a guinness stew but if you were to make a meal representing your irish food what would it be well look um family food school is in the middle of 100 acre organic farm so we cook absolutely with the seasons and uh, just depends on what happens to be in season at this time. So at the moment, we've got the wild garlic, what you call ramps is just coming into season. So a group of students have just gone into the kitchens there to make a delicious, simple potato soup, because you know our potatoes are really good. And then they'll make a wild garlic pesto to drizzle over the top of that. Also, we, it depends on the season, but we have wonderful prawns at the moment or oysters. Yeah. Oysters are still in season because there's a gnar in the month. Um, native Irish oysters. Wouldn't we like those with a little champagne sauce or something? Would you like that? Yes, please. That would be yeah. good. <laughs> good. And then lovely fat prawns would be lovely, or what you call langoustine as well. And then our lamb. Oh, gosh, it's, I'm going all over the place. You'll be too full by the time I get to the end of the thing. But we have wonderful lamb as well, mountain lamb. The lamb from different parts of Ireland tastes different. I know a lot of Americans don't like lamb, but you haven't tasted the sweet, juicy Irish lamb. And the first of the little fresh mint mm. uh, is just coming up now. It got a touch of frost the other night, but it's just coming up. So we'd make, we'd maybe slow roast a shoulder of that lamb and then until it's almost falling off the bones and then serve that with maybe a, a simple little traditional mint sauce or else uh -huh. it could be a fresh mint chutney made with the fresh mint leaves. That's delicious too. Lots of lovely roasty potatoes. And we have the end of our Brussels sprout, our Brussels sprout tops, you know, the heads We've been cooking those. And then a lot of the greens, the kale and everything, are beginning to sprout. So those kale sprouts and things, delicious. That would be so good with it. And then what are we going to have for pudding? Rhubarb. The first of the rhubarb is coming in, into season. 
And so we're going to have a rhubarb pie. Oh my God. Definitely. A delicious, juicy rhubarb pie. And we'll serve that with softly whipped Jersey cream. And we'll sprinkle some soft, dark brown sugar over it. How about that? You're coming to supper. Oh, my God. Check, please. I'm in. Darina, I keep looking <laughs> out at my bleak desk waiting for these dishes to magically pop up out of thin air as you rattle them off. It sounds delicious, and it's a long way from my preconceived notion of whatever I thought Irish food was. You're listening to highlights from conversations we enjoyed from the last 100 episodes of Season. Later in the hour, you'll hear one of my very first interviews for the show. It was with one of Connecticut's best-known chefs, Tyler Anderson. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, we went on location to learn how the sausage is made. It's one of my favorite field trips. I'm taking you to the Hummel Brothers Hot Dog Factory for a tour and tasting. That's amazing. You won't get a fresher hot dog out of this. That's delicious. This is Season. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're sharing a few highlights from the last 100 episodes of Seasoned. Earlier, we learned about Mexican cuisine from Patty Heenich and spoke with Chef Dorina Allen from the Ballymaloo Cookery School and Farm in Ireland. Now, we're going to share some moments a little closer to home. I'm always game for a fun field trip. I'm also a huge hot dog fan. So I spent some time with the team who make Hummel Brothers hot dogs at their facility in New Haven. I learned about the history of the family-run business and saw how the sausage is made, literally. Then came the moment of truth, the tasting. Here's a bit of that experience. I could talk about hot dogs for days, but I really wanted to see how these beauties are made. It's going to get a little noisy because it's a hot dog factory. Plant manager James Vi guides the tour. We start in the chilly room where the meat is stored and then move to where thousands of pounds of pork and beef is flaked and ripped and ground by machines to make the emulsion that will ultimately become hot dogs. They're shaped and strung from massive racks on meat trolleys suspended from the ceiling. They glide into giant hickory smokers in the smokehouse area where the hot dogs smoke for just a few minutes before being rinsed and cooled. About 45 workers in white or blue lab coats with hairnets are laser focused on the tasks in the processing, smoking, and packing rooms. David Hamilton from Quality Control joins us when it's time to taste a just smoked skinless hot dog. And spoiler alert, it's delicious. But first, James.
Okay, so this is the fresh meat cooler. This is where we receive all of our meat and we store it until it's time for production. So everything we bring in is in combos. It's neat, it's tidy. This is pork trim. Right, so that's nice. all this trim. So what cuts of pork would you get this trim from? This is just basically ham trim, it's loin trim. It's from any cuts of, any cuts of the pig. Nice. That's, yeah. So it's a 72% lean. Okay. Which means, you know, the rest of it is fat. So these, each, each one of these one. containers is 2,000 pounds of trim, right? Pork trim. Uh, pork trim, yes. Yeah, that's a lot of pork trim there. Uh, yeah. And this pork trim gets used for? Majority of the product, including nice. hot dogs. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. Great. And our beef product is all in neat and tidy boxes. So we use a 90%, a 50%. Sometimes it's 60% and we blend it all to make our blends for the hot dogs. And again, that percentage is fat to lean, right? Yes. Yep. The pork and the beef is we blend it together, what we call our all blends, and that's what we make the hot dogs out of. That's here. No I mean, seasoning, it's just meat. It looks like ground beef, basically. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll probably have some inside. And then, depending on what kind of hot dogs we're making, on this line we're making a skinless hot dog. And over here we're making a, a nine inch natural casing hot dog. Okay. So it's cooked in the plastic, in the cellulose casing, and then it's, it's cut off on a peeler on the other side. We'll see that as we go over there. Do you ever get tired of hot dogs? You know, I don't eat that many, but no, I don't. <laughs> nice. I don't. How many of these will come through on a, on a, like a day? So on a good day, each trolley weighs about, we'll call it 400 pounds. Okay. And on a good day on this machine, we can do just under 70. Wow. Yeah, so about, what's that, 28,000 pounds? Yeah, that's a lot of hot dogs. Yeah. This machine cow. runs the fastest. Wow. Yeah, this is, this is more efficient than the natural casing line. So we have one skinless line to our two natural lines. Gotcha. So this is the natural line. Okay, great. Okay, this is not skinless. This is the natural casing. This is the edible casing. This is the one you're going to get the snap from. It's gonna be some finished product coming right out of the smokehouse. We don't cook with smoke, we yeah, flavor yeah. with smoke. 100%, so right, we right. do, you know, we do a little cook cycle, then the smoke, then we cook more. What temperature does that smoke at when you're when you're smoking? Temperature the smoke at it is about 120 degrees. Yeah, that's what I say, probably 100, 120. Just well we only cook in there at 180. Yeah. We don't have to yell. I don't have to yell. <laughs> Come on in. So again, these are the skinless hot dogs just came out of the smokehouse and we're just gonna taste one okay so let's just do it the casing on the outside is that 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 casing we talked about where it's uh it's not collagen it is this is cellulose it's a cellulose casing on the outside it's got a blue stripe on it and he's peeling the casing off of there it's peeling right off it actually looks great looks fantastic just break it off yeah go for it this is fully cooked ready to eat all right so i brought a piece off here let me that's what i've been waiting for all day that's really tasty Mm-hmm. No, huh? That's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. You won't get a fresher hot dog, obviously. That's delicious. What kind of seasonings go in this that we yeah, can talk I about? I can't tell you that. Give <laughs> <laughs> me just an idea. No. And the salt, a little curing salt. No. He's like, I wish you guys could see his face right now. Everybody's shaking his head like, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> and that smoke comes through really nice on that, too. It's not overpowering. It's just kind of hint in the background, that smoke. But I have a feeling with some of the salt that's in there, that smoke and salt are best friends. Mm -hmm. So it really starts to add a lot to that flavor to it, oh, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. 
garlic powder in there too. <laughs> I'm trying. I believe on the label it says spices. Ah, spices. Flavorings. Spices. Yes, I have two. I'd love to try to guess them. I could figure it out. I know you I can figure can out most of them. You you're not gonna come, you're not gonna confirm or deny though, right? I can't say anything. That was Chef Plum with Hummel Brothers staff James Vi and David Hamilton, keeping the secret family recipe very safe. Now, from New Haven to Mystic, some conversations we had stand out to us because they just made us better cooks. Last summer we talked with David Standridge, executive chef of the Shipwright's Daughter in Mystic about fish species you might be unfamiliar with but should consider trying. Plus, he shared some tips for how to shop for and cook whole fish that we might actually find at our local markets. These are some seafood tips you might need right now. You know, we all know what seasonal means when it comes to vegetables, but we don't talk a lot about seasonality when it comes to seafood. Can you mm. talk about that for a second? Yeah, I mean, there's there's certain species that are local to the area, and most fish markets are pretty good about origin now, where they'll have a little tag that says yeah. where it was caught. And that's really important. And I would never at a fish market buy something that wasn't caught in local waters mm. unless it didn't have anything. I was desperate. That's the first thing that shows that it's seasonal. If it was caught locally, it's seasonal, it's fresh. Um, and their fish do kind of run in, in different times of year. And the less it's in season, the more likely it is in being far away, like swordfish, for instance, or tuna. You can get it in the winter, but they're not fishing for it in the winter in the North Atlantic. No one's fishing for anything. So it's probably coming from Ecuador. And, right. um, you know, we don't really want Ecuadorian swordfish for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I have that push-pull of mm -hmm. I try to look for local. And then yep. sometimes, like, I'm like, off the coast of Florida, is that local enough? <laughs> you know, if, <laughs> if, I have, if I'm crossing a big sea, it gives me pause. It really does. Yeah, it's handling. For me, it's, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with how they fish in some other countries. I'm sure there's really various fishermen to fishermen and, and what the regulations are. But... For me, if it's coming from Ecuador, how long did it take to get here? And right. that's right. definitely right. not fresh. And then for me, I'd rather just support local business people. Right. And my goal is really, that's the whole thing. I want to support the fishermen. I want the fishermen to, I want that to be a, a trade and a job that is viable again. Yeah. Um, so I really want that money to go to the people that I would like to support. That's important to me. You know, minus all, and chef, I used to always say to uh, my sous chef or my chef de cuisine uh, back in the day, I would say, how many hands have touched this before it got to us? Mm. Yeah. And I wonder if you can give us some tips on what we should be looking for. We got into it a little bit. Obviously, we don't want a fish that smells like fish because that's just a one-way ticket to, to bed. A weird paradox. I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I never thought about it like that until you said that. Right. And I was like, yeah, she's right, actually. Yeah. Could you imagine asking for a steak that didn't taste so much like steak? Could you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> For me, the biggest tip, and it's a little bit of, a, of an adjustment for people, you know, when you go to a fish market and you see a, a whole thing of fillets in ice, which there shouldn't really even be in ice, you can't tell anything from a fillet. Mm. It's too late. And I think that what would really help people is if they just get a little bit comfortable with cooking whole fish. It's really Reese. easy to do. Yeah, it's simple. Whoa, 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 whoa. Says that the two <laughs> chefs are like, it's so easy. Just get a whole yeah. fish and bring it home. <laughs> Hello? Uh, <laughs> what am I, I mean, doing? Listen. Uh, I get it. Like you're going to put a whole fish down in front of your, your boys. First of all, they're going to think it's awesome, but they're not going to eat it. I'm guessing, <laughs> they right? are going to think it's pretty cool. They're going to stab its eyeballs. Um, yeah. So so walk me through it. So I'm going to go to the fishmonger. Actually, yep. I think I saw Red Snapper in mm -hmm. its totality. What do I do? Yep. Chef, the first thing I always say is that you know, the, the telling point in this funny she brought the eyes are the eyes of the fish. If the eyes aren't clear, 
that fish is probably not as fresh as you might think it is. Interesting. Yeah. The eyes are great because it's one of the few things you can tell without touching the fish. Okay. And they don't really like you to touch the fish. Right. So first, th- <laughs> so first things first, clear eyes. Then what? If they would let you touch the fish, sometimes, I mean, I've done it in stores where I was like, I'll wear a glove. It's fine. When you push on the flesh, it should bounce back. It should be firm. If it leaves a fingerprint, mm. don't buy it. Uh, okay. That's a bad sign. Then the other one is the gills. The gills should be like a bright red, ideally. Okay. As it, the fish gets older, they're going to start to get more of a brown color and start to get kind of slimy. But gills from a really fresh fish are just like crisp and they're dark, bright red. Those are the, the big telling signs of fresh fish. The immediate no bueno sign is if you take the fish out and it smells terrible. You trust your senses, you know? Okay, so I've, I've checked the eyeballs. I've checked the gills. I've checked the <laughs> smell. I bring it home. What am I doing yep. with this beautiful red snapper? So before you bring it home, you ask your fishmonger to clean it for you. Oh, gosh, So they can take the fins God. off. Okay, yes. <laughs> Scale, they'll take the scales off. They'll take the fins off. They can basically get it ready to cook. And it's just a whole fish. It's totally clean. All you have to do is cook it when you get home. And then when you get it home, like you don't have to worry about cutting it. You don't have to. You can cook it completely whole. Just buy a fish that's small enough for your pan or for your grill. Personally, I try to cook fish outside just because I don't have a hood in my house and I don't really love to smell the fish the next day. So on a grill, I really recommend like a charcoal grill because most gas grills don't get hot enough. Yeah. Just get your coals ready like you would grill anything. Make sure the grill itself is really clean and oil it well. Oil the fish, season it, put it on the grill, and that's about it. That's Um, it. That's pretty much it. I mean, the flipping process can be a little bit tricky. Those little fish holders that they sell, if you've ever seen them, they make these fish holders out of wire where it's like opens like a cage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those things work great. Oh, duly Highly recommend. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now that you've co-signed, I'll get one of those. (laughs) Well, when it comes to cooking fish on the grill, I get very very fired up about a grill. Yeah. I still like to have that one side hot, that one side not Mm. so hot. So that Mm -hmm. indirect heating method to where you have the coals on one side of the grill. Or if it's a gas grill, only one side of it on and let it get nice and hot covered and then put that fish on. You know, maybe you could start it on that hot side, then you can move it over so it doesn't get all charred up and burned. Because there are some occasions if you keep those little fins on and little parts of the fins, it it can char up. And I don't think it looks as pretty on a plate. (laughs) That's true. I like the charred parts of that. It's like the crispy bits. I do too. Because I I happen to love salmon skin. I love when it gets crisped up. Oh, my God. It's It's like salmon bacon. It's so delicious. Okay, I have to go back to this. So I can ask the fishmonger to debone and all that business and then just bring it home and I'm throwing it on the grill. They're not going to debone it for you. They're, that would be a fillet situation. Okay, we kind of do a special wondering. deboning here where it's whole but no bones, but that's not the kind of thing you'll get in a fishmonger. But they'll take the fins off and there'll still be bones in the fish, which I think a lot of people in America aren't used to, but it's not that big a deal. So yeah. so they take the, they descale it. They take the, mm-hmm. what else are they taking off? The fins? Yep. And then so I'm, I have this whole fish at home. Do I just stuff it? I mean, I'm, I'm literally I'm trying herbs. to envision this at home on behalf of all my home cooks. Listening. Yeah, 100%. It doesn't have to always be on the grill either. If you don't have a great grill or if it's too cold outside and there's nine feet of snow, get a nice big cookie sheet, sheet pan, put some parchment paper down or that, that wax paper yeah, yeah. and put your fish on there, put some olive oil on there, throw some herbs, season it up nicely and just roast it in a 350 degree oven. That works great too. Okay, fine. I'm holding both of you to it. <laughs> 
throw some herbs, put some citrus, put put some other things in there to flavor it up. I'm a big herbs de Provence fan. You know, I like Mm -hmm. putting lavender and things like that. And I think it adds a lot of flavor to it. But seasoning it is key. But, you know, make sure when you get that, they scale that for you because you don't want to scale that fish in your kitchen. You'll be fine. Right. It'll be a a disaster. Although there are some fish where you can eat the scales. We do a lot of scaled on fish here. It works really well. Well, that so, might be a little advanced, but we can go into that next time. Well, no, actually, I actually I want to I'd like to take a turn in this direction because, you know, we have the usual suspects. Salmon, I think, is pretty approachable by a lot of people. Shrimp, tilapia. Are there other seafood that we might turn our noses up or be like, I don't know what that is, that we should be really leaning yeah, into? There are so many. And I think it's it's one of the things that I really want people to know about because when we talk about sustainability, mm-hmm. it's obviously hugely important. A lot of the fish that you find, especially if you're talking about grocery store fish or bigger chain stores, they have like the major fish, the ones that everybody wants, the super popular ones. If you're doing a small fishmonger, they at least might have the ability to get some different fish. And there's a lot of really sustainable species that are delicious that you don't see on the shelves. Yeah. Porgy is a big one locally. There's so many porgy out there. They're also called scup. Just a great fish, easy to cook. They have some bones in them, but all fish have bones. Hmm. They're also really inexpensive. That's the other thing. That some of these underutilized species for, you know, there's a whole other side of this discussion about, you know, the affordability of fish and, you know, how people can get fish that aren't necessarily at a high income level. And some of these species that are a little underutilized are a great way for people to get into the fish, into their diet without spending a ton of money. You know, I want to talk about those scup or those porgies for a Mm -hmm. second because... One of my favorite fish actually to eat hands down is the porgy. It's inexpensive. It's mm-hmm. delicious. And if you take that porgy and you dredge it in just a little bit of flour or even mm-hmm. a flour of your choice if you want to go gluten-free, mm-hmm. but you just dredge it in a little seasoned flour. And I season mine up a little bit of garlic powder, salt, some black pepper, uh, and just dredge it in that and then put that down and pan sear that or pan fry that. What a delicious sandwich porgy mm. makes. I'm telling you, it is so good and it's so simple. I think it's one of those things you see in a store and you're like, I don't know what to do with that. What is a porgy? And it's this cute little fun fish to catch and they're delicious. <laughs> it's a fun yes, fish to catch. <laughs> it is. I love them. <laughs> That's a true story. Let's see. <laughs> All right. Plum and I were talking the other day about sea robin. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I love sea robin. It's a weird looking fish, I have to say. Yes. It's actually... I, it's got a weird face, a couple of fish with weird faces, but sea robin to me, and this is going to turn everybody off, but it kind of looks like a puppy. Oh, so I was going, what? Oh, it's sea puppy. Okay, <laughs> we time out, time out, time out. It looks nothing like a puppy. And it, it ha- <laughs> under its dorsal fins, it has these weird talon things that come out. If these little sea, like feelers. It, if sea robins came down on a spaceship, we'd all would run for our lives. <laughs> it's not a true. puppy. We would not the face play catch. We would like, not play right? catch. It's got a snout. Well, and it kind of barks when you catch it, quite frankly. It makes these weird barking sounds. This is unbelievable. <laughs> now that I've become emotionally attached to the sea robin, how do I cook yes. it? Yes. Same like any other fish. Honestly, it's a, it's a white flesh fish. It's like a little meatier than something like fluke or, or halibut would be. But it's perfectly mild and, and sweet and delicious. Um, it eats the same things that fluke and um, you know a lot of sea bass and all those kind of northeastern deeper in the water fish eat and it's easy to splay it is how i'd recommend it or you can just cut the tail off actually and just eat the tail on the bone is a delicious way to do it hand roasted you know you can cut the fillets and fry also it's actually become a really popular fish and chips fish in england oh um, it hasn't quite crossed the pond yet 
You know, I don't think of it much as a, a lot of meat on that fish, but uh, I hear a lot about the tails, so that's interesting. There's quite a bit, actually. The, the fillets are pretty thick. It's just there's a, the head is quite large and it's a bit it's quite bony, so you can't use a head for anything. But we love it. We've got the sea robin. We've got the the porgy. Any other fish that we yeah some of the more sustainable ones locally are um, obviously shellfish like scallops, oysters, redfish is a good one. Red perch. It's an ocean perch delicious again a lot of these fish too people are like what is it like well it's like it's like delicious fish you know, there's not a, <laughs> it's, that's what it's like they're not you know there's really when you're talking about white flesh fish there there's a pretty similarity there in in what they taste like you know they're all mild you can pretty much do the same things with them they're very interchangeable right. um, although they all do are a little different it's not like the difference between salmon and flounder you know all kind of in the same wheelhouse. Right. Although I, when my children were very young, I convinced them that tilapia was chicken um, <laughs> and they bought it hook, line and sinker because I wanted them to have some fish and yeah. I scarred them for life because now they, I think they still refer to tilapia as chicken. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> kind of the chicken of the fish world. It's the chicken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a highlight from our conversation with David Standridge, the executive chef at the Shipwright's Daughter in Mystic. Definitely plan at least one special meal there if you're having a long weekend or staycation in Mystic before the summer ends. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we listen to one of our very first conversations for the show. It's with Tyler Anderson, one of the state's most celebrated chefs. Restaurant people by nature are, we can move, we can duck, we can weave, we can deal with situations. We're hustlers and it's something I've been doing my whole life. We've come a long way since 2020. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. To mark the 100th episode of Seasoned, we're looking back at some of our favorite conversations with guests. And one of the things that we wanted to do when we first launched Season in the really early days of the pandemic was shine a light on restaurants and chefs who were finding ways to stay open and give back during a time when eating out wasn't as simple as making a reservation or just showing up. One of our first interviews, for our very first episode in fact, was with Chef Tyler Anderson, owner of Millwrights in Simsbury. I got a chef-guided tour of the expanded restaurant one evening in 2020 and talked with Tyler about the ways he was pivoting to serve his customers. There were picnic tables and outdoor dining by the waterfall. Later, there were discreet little greenhouses and the debut of Taku Food Truck. It's in the Millwrights parking lot. 
Here's a bit of my conversation with Tyler Anderson. And again, we spoke when restaurants were just starting to reopen after the shutdown. After you, let's head out to the bridge, shall we? And you will hear a huge difference because the waterfall, we can't shut that thing off. Not that we should. No, I don't want it to shut up. You know, we were, we were honestly a little concerned about the noise of the waterfall affecting a dining experience, but it works out perfectly when you're sitting at a table because you can hear the people across from you, but you can't hear the people at the table next to you. We, we just walked another 10 feet and there is a hand washing station. Yeah, hand washing station, just in case you prefer the traditional method. Two sanitizers, two hand washing stations on your way in and out. And then here we are on the old bridge. All right, let's cross the bridge and see the kitchen. All right, here we go. We're on the other side of the bridge and another hand washing station. Another hand washing station. We wanted to be very, very transparent with what we're doing here. We wanted people to be able to see how their drinks are prepared, how their food is prepared. So you can just walk up, you can see the bartender making your drinks. We're doing full bar, we're doing full wine list, we're doing everything that way. And people are drinking quite a bit these days, which is <laughs> awesome. Keep that up, folks. Uh, that's Chef Ashley. Hi, Chef Ashley. She so just waved at us. We're doing about 100 covers a night here, close to 100 covers a night. We do four courses, so we have about 400 plates of food that leave that little area every night. We do all the prep inside, we bring it out every day and then we redo it all again the next day. We take everything back in, we clean the whole truck, uh, we go through it all, and then we come back in. By the way, it smells delicious. You've got all this beautiful wood underneath your bar, and it sounds like whatever I eat tonight will be prepared by wood fire. We are very fortunate to be able to use maple wood here in New England, which is like cheat. It's like God helping you cheat at cooking. <laughs> uh, so maple wood just gives off like this subtle sweetness to everything it's cooked over. I want to walk over to the table sure. because you've done something that is so charming, but necessary right. to keep things even more sanitary. We didn't want service staff touching a bunch of stuff at your table and having to have like a bunch of interactions with things on your table. So everything you need to start your meal is packaged before in a picnic basket and put on your table. Beautiful, it is this uh, red gingham that's where I got my silverware. Yep. I got my butter. Everything was wrapped up, completely sanitized. I think there was even a menu in there. Yeah, your menus are in there. There's a note. Your bread service is in there. Water, water glasses, silverware, all ready to go. And it's one less touch, or it's a lot less touches, actually. Everything is wrapped up. Everything is in there, clean and ready to go. After the tour, Chef Tyler Anderson sat down and talked to me a little bit more about how the restaurant adapted during the pandemic and what's next. Restaurant people by nature are, we can move, we can duck, we can weave, we can deal with situations. Uh, a lot of us, we're hustlers and it's something I've been doing my whole life. So, you know, instead of sitting on our hands and crying about the situation, we decided to figure it out here. And we did takeout. Um, we set up a curbside uh, no contact system. We put a little one of those ring doorbells where you can see the people and we ran the control center out of here. We turned our dining room into a warehouse and we had amazing, amazing support. People in the Farmington Valley and people from all over the place came and got food from us and we were able to keep half of our staff employed throughout, uh, which was great. And here we are today, you know, unfolding slowly but surely each phase. We're trying to nail each phase. What was it like transitioning to takeout? Had you done takeout before? No, I've never done takeout in my <laughs> life. The most takeout I ever did was at Cook and the Bear. And we did a good amount of takeout there, but I wasn't involved really in the logistics of takeout. And then when you go to doing 
close to the same volume you were doing before in food. Like, obviously, we were missing the beverage piece the entire time. But when you're doing close to the same volume in boxes, uh, it's not easy, you know, and you <laughs> you have to pivot and you have to have a good team around you. And thankfully, we had the ability to do both. But when you're like loading up all these little cups of things, um, you know, it was interesting and I like to do different stuff. It's why, you know, I wake up every day and I don't really know what I'm going to do that day. And that's kind of how I prefer things to be. And I think that came through really well during that time because we're in the Farmington Valley of Connecticut and there aren't a million people living here. And so what we knew we needed to do is we needed to do something different all the time. I mean, I was doing chef collaboration dinners. We were doing virtual dinners. We turned into a barbecue restaurant for a week and a half till the health department shut me down. I think it worked, but at the same time, my staff came in to work every day very confused. It was just like, please follow me and do the best we can, <laughs> and let's see how long it takes us to fill up all these little containers of stuff. I mean, at one point, we did a seven-course tasting menu to go. We have pivoted, and we're opening a full-service catering company where we're getting a wood-fired trailers, and we can take them wherever you want. We don't need any gas. We don't need any water. We don't need any electricity. We could do this in the middle of a forest. We could cater a party for 200 people. And we just feel like that is where things will be going now. That's Chef Tyler Anderson from 2020. We want to make sure you know about the latest way one of Connecticut's favorite chefs is giving back to the community. Together with Hands on Hartford, Tyler is spearheading the state's first pay-what-you-can restaurant. It's called Gather 55, and it's at Hands on Hartford's headquarters on Bartholomew Street. Gather 55 is currently open for breakfast and lunch. When they open for dinner this fall, those who can swing it will pay $35, or more if they choose, for a three-course dinner prepared by Connecticut chefs who rotate monthly. Those not able to pay the full $35 will pay what they can. The pay-what-you-can concept is one way to chip away at food insecurity in Connecticut, and it is so exciting to see Tyler and Hands on Hartford take the lead on this in our very own state. Visit the website, gather55.com, to learn more about the mission, and then check their Facebook page for updates on the timing of their dinner launch, featured chefs, and menus. You can find them at Gather 55. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken, Katie Talarski, Emily Cherish, and Catrice Claudio. Our summer interns are Anya Grandowski and Mira Raju. Shout out to all of CT Public's interns over the last 100 episodes who helped us make the show. We couldn't have done it without them. To keep up with the latest on season, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on Twitter or follow the hashtag SeasonedCT on all platforms. Thanks for listening, everybody, today and every week. You can catch past episodes of Seasoned on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with people making great food and drink in our state and beyond. See you next week.